the House passed the debt ceiling deal and the Senate is poised to take it up as we speak, we'll quickly run down what's in the deal and what it all means. Then a growing number of conservatives want to revisit no-fault divorce laws in this country. How serious is this effort and could it change marriage as we know it? Then in slow takes, we'll look back at the Jordan Neely subway death. The political debate around the incident hasn't died down all these weeks later. What actually happened and what meaning can we make from it all? This is a lost debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I think this debt saga, at least for a couple of years, Seems to be past us. The Fiscal Responsibility Act passed in the House last night. This bill will cut spending, speed up permitting for some energy projects, enact new work requirements for food stamps and TAMF, recover $28 billion in unspent COVID money, and redirect roughly $20 billion in IRS funds to other agencies. It passed the House in a 314-117 bipartisan vote yesterday. I think you can sum up the enthusiasm, Ricky, on the Hill for this. Uh, In Jamie Raskin's quote, he's a Democrat from Maryland, he said, quote, this is the weirdest legislation that anybody has ever been asked to vote on since I got (laughs) here. Nobody seems to support all of it. Everybody has problems with parts of it, but the macro alternative is absolutely indigestible. Ricky, are you excited? (laughs) I mean, at least we got somewhere, but it seems that all we really did was kick the ball down the road just slightly because the debt ceiling is now suspended until 2025. Um, I think, you know, both sides had their own little victories. I think Biden and, and McCarthy are both trying to tout it as you know, a compromise, but good for their own side. It's interesting to see um, some pretty mixed reactions here. But, you know, for those who are worried about spending, um, it is cut. Uh, pretty substantially. The non-military spending will be flat for 2024. Although I would point out that we already had an enormous swell in our our budget post-pandemic and keeping it flat really shouldn't be um, too much of a, a task. But unfortunately, that always seems to be the case. Um, and they're capping it at a 1% increase in 2025. Um, you know, there's some things that I'm in favor of, including redirecting $20 billion that we're going to go to the IRS um, and recouping COVID, unspent COVID money. That seems uh, like pretty low hanging fruit, but this doesn't seem to be the sort of radical thing that um, Republicans were holding up uh potentially defaulting on our debt in order to accomplish. You're left wondering in a divided government whether Republicans could have gotten a lot of this through the appropriations process, right? Because they still have to pass appropriations bill. And interestingly in this, there is a provision that says there's a it'll force a 1% cut in spending if all 12 appropriations bills this year aren't passed at the end of the year. A um, mm-hmm. couple other things that are notable here, the student loan repayments piece, People are trumpeting this as victory, but this Biden had already announced that he was going to resume pay, collecting payments at the end of August. Yeah. So this was something he'd already done. I think people are mistakenly commingling that with the Supreme Court case and Biden's attempt to relieve a certain amount of student loan debt. He has not pulled that card. So he's still yeah. continuing to fight that case. He hasn't let go on that at all. There's a couple other things in here like permitting rules, et cetera. But it just seems like a whole lot of nothing for such a big threat. Like we were a couple days away from a true like calling on the full faith and credit of the United States in a way that it's never been seen before. Just uh, I'm not just I'm just not sure if this is worth it all. I guess this is what happens though when you have a lot of gridlock. This is just the the product of a lot of compromise and no one's really happy in the end. But I mean I would say 
it's it's unconscionable to me that we would have increased our spending beyond 2023 and 2024 with the debt that we have. So it's a minor victory, and at least we're holding that steady in the short term. But another thing that's getting a lot of criticism is um, a change in benefits requirements. There's new work requirements for getting food stamps. It used to be um, only adults under 49 without kids would need to work in order to qualify. Now they're raising it from 49 to 54, which would um, affect about 275,000 people. But there will be new exemptions imminent for homeless people and veterans. Um, another thing, Joe Manchin seems to have gotten a win um, with getting the remaining permits required to complete the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And there's updates to environmental permitting, which I think is a, a positive, which puts a limit of one to two years on environmental reviews that the federal government does in order to um, approve any new environment or energy infrastructure. And this would require them to do that efficiently so that we could actually get ahead in creating an income source. So I, I'd see that as a positive, but you know, I mean, yeah. it does feel like mostly a nothing burger to me. Yeah, this should have just been regular business in a divided government. That's kind of my take. Like, we, one could argue about is this the right, you know, age limit for this or the right permitting process? But there seem like this seemed to be a like a maximal leverage for just what should be basic yeah. business on the Hill. Now, what's fascinating is both McCarthy and Biden are catching heat for this, but I, I think it's a victory for both of them. I think when it when it comes down to the election, you know, McCarthy, you know, trying to get a speakership. Uh, renewed in a couple mm -hmm. of years. So this is great. I think it's wonderful that they voted for it because they are now on record. So they can't sit there and yell, this isn't good. So I'll bring something back tomorrow. Let's get the rest of the IRS agent. Let's get the rest of the work requirements. Let's cut more because we are in a big debt. This is fabulous. This is one of the best nights I've ever been here. I thought it would be hard. And Biden going up for re-election. He says, tonight the House took a critical step forward to prevent a first ever default and protect our country's hard earned and historic economic recovery. This budget agreement is a bipartisan compromise. Neither side got everything it wanted. That's the responsibility of governing. I don't think this is going to be on anybody's radar anymore. I think people are going to see past this. Uh, for McCarthy, yeah. his his the name of the game for him is survive in advance. And yes, he had to rely upon Democrats to move forward. He did get a majority of majority, which is you know, what they call the so-called Hassert rule, essentially saying on the House is kind of a made-up rule that you only introduce legislation if you get a majority of your own caucus, which he did. He got some help from Democrats. Certain um, Democrats have come out forcefully against this, like Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus. This was a deal that was negotiated with a gun to the American people's he heads. And the stated reason that Republicans did this is because they said they wanted to cut spending and cut the deficit. That is not what is happening in this deal. Bernie Sanders you know, as, as you would predict is not for this, but by and large people move on. And I, it, honestly, I, I, there's some interesting substance here, but no more so than any other normal appropriations debate that we'd have in a normal year. And so hopefully we won't have to hear from this about this again, hopefully ever, but certainly until 2025, January 1st is the next deadline for that, which, you know, we could be back here again, but at least we bought ourselves some time. We'll just continue to be in denial over the fact that we're plunging ourselves into debt that we will never be able to dig ourselves well, out of. Fun. Love it.
we should talk more, but we've done some segments on the debt. It, it also strikes me that everybody just takes for granted that we're going to increase military spending as if that's necessary, right? I know you're not saying that, but it's like, are, like, well, they're increasing it in line with inflation. But why is that just a given? You know, we spend, I don't even have the statistic at hand, but it's like absurd the amount of money we spend compared to, you know, the next few countries behind us and any, you know, reasonable reporting on this. And th- I think this is something that, that there are good, there's good reporting in the right center, alternative media, left, Taibi, who I've been critical on this podcast of, has written some really interesting and thorough articles just about how much waste there is in the Pentagon. So like when people say we're increasing military spending, well, we just need that to, to keep ourselves safe. It's just like, that's not what this money's going for, right? Like what's the marginal yeah. utility of the 20th aircraft carrier or the golden seat, you know, metaphorically at the Pentagon, you know, there's just so much damn waste. Um, well, we'll see if we can dig up some of this reporting Tybee did a couple of years ago, because it's really instructive just about how just little accountability there is both within direct spending in the Pentagon, but also in this just sea of contractors that we have doing a lot of the work of national security in this country. And there's just not a whole lot of accountability. On, on those dollars. And it just seems like when these moments come and go, it's more about the political talking point that, oh, we protected military spending. Well, I'm like, well, maybe we shouldn't protect military spending. I agree, but I don't think any of those issues are specifically endemic to the military and not just government spending by and large in pretty much any facet. But I agree. I'm yeah, not I'm not a big But we're giving the military special person. consideration. No, I agree yeah. with you, but why give them then the military special consideration and say that it's no, immune I, I from all these disagree. other No, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. All right. Well, let's talk. Let's do a complete 180 and talk about no fault divorce, Ricky. This was a surprising story. So there's a trend going on here, and you tell me. You know, you you know more about some of these actors than I do, but essentially. There is now a symmetry developing between certain very prominent figures in right-wing media and state legislators. It's starting to grow in prominence now. So people like Stephen Crowder, Tim Poole, Matt Walsh, Michael Knowles, and Ben Shapiro have recently, in the past two years, criticized no-fault divorce. And we're going to use the term no-fault divorce in this segment the way that they are using it and the commentators using it, which is we're going to commingle no-fault and unilateral divorce, because it seems like when people are criticizing no-fault divorce, that's what they mean. So they're criticizing the the fact that we kind of just, you know, as a system, don't take into account who is wrong or right in a divorce proceeding when allocating assets and deciding, you know, whether a divorce is, divorce is you know, worthy of the court's time, et cetera, when child, you know, child custody issues, et cetera. And we have a, uh, a system now where in all 50 states, you basically can get a divorce if one party to to the marriage wants to end it, right? But when people mm-hmm. are criticizing no-fault divorce, they're co-mingling those two things. So we have like a, a pretty significant right-wing media chorus criticizing no-fault divorce, and you have state legislators starting to pick this up. So the Republican Party of Texas added language to its platform calling for an end to no-fault divorce. Quote, they said, uh, we, urged the legislat- we urged the legislature to rescind unilateral no-fault divorce laws to support conve- uh, com- covenant marriage and to pass legislation extending the period of time in which the divorce may occur to six months after the date of filing divorce. There's a similar proposal being workshopped by the Republican Party of Louisiana. The, G- the Nebraska GOP has affirmed its belief that no-fault divorce should be only accessible to couples without children. All 50 states in DC have no-fault divorce laws on the books, Ricky. We can talk about the history of all this, but this seems like a, I don't know, tell me, it feels like a significant 
sense of momentum behind some change to this law? I think, you know, there's a few conservative states in which that's the case and a few major conservative commentators talking about this. But I would say in my media diet, um, being a more right-leaning person, it's not a major issue for a lot of people. I think there's just sort of like a neo-trad movement, particularly of some of like the younger podcasters and the kind of Daily Wire sphere that might be turning more that way. And, you know, that might be the beginning of a tide. And obviously there are legislators following, following suit, but I wouldn't say this is like a particularly mainstream view in, in my circles. What I would say is mainstream though, is not necessarily saying that the law needs to change in order to, to change this fact, but a greater appreciation for, um, I guess, the the sanctity of marriage and the and concern over the fact that divorce rates are frighteningly high, and that I mean, maybe we should consider on a social level how how to remedy that. Um, but I I don't know anyone personally who's advocating for like a legal change in this way. But that's just my my so, little circle. The reason why I think this is worthy of discussion is that I just named, if you go on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, forget conservative media. What I just Mm -hmm. named are like six of the top 20 podcasters in America and certainly the dominant voices in YouTube and and podcasting for conservative media. You know, no more so prominent than Ben Shapiro, who on any given day usually has one of the top podcast episodes mm-hmm. listened to in the country. Yeah. Millions and millions and millions of listeners, more than cable, more, a lot of cable news, not if not most cable news shows. This is what he had to say about this a couple months ago. So if you're talking about what exactly shifted, no-fault divorce in the United States is essentially the thing that, that shifted. And, and with that came family breakdown, came a, a the rise of individualistic subjective autonomy, the belief that you were to be disconnected from institutions, and that bled all the way down the chain. One of the great ironies, by the way, when it comes to the elitists is that they don't actually live like they preach. If you look at the elitists, many of them are married, many of them have kids, many of them went to college, most of them made pretty good life decisions, which is how they got to be successful. But the stuff that they preach is precisely the opposite of that. And it's ingested by pop culture and then spewed out there. And people who are sort of lower down on the economic scale, those are the people who tend to embody that. And then those are the ones who suffer. All right. So this is like a gross simplification. And if people say, well, this is cut together in a certain way, this is their own, this is Daily Wire's own cut of this take. And so it's hard, he, he talks so fast, it's hard to, to, to really dissect. Is he saying no-fault divorce is responsible for the individualism or it's co-mingled with the individualism? But I do yeah. think it's important for us to take a step back to say there are, there, we have to treat this as two separate questions. One is, What's in the best interest of the the party to the marriage or the parties to the marriage? And then what's in the best interest of kids, right? And Mm -hmm. there's just so much data. Even the people who are advocating you know, the scholars at least, who advocate for a change to these laws. And we'll we'll put an article in the show notes from the National Interest, which I think is by far the most thorough take on this from a few years ago, uh, that basically does a thorough job of explaining why they think that we should revisit some of these laws. Even they acknowledge that most parties to the marriage, especially the people seeking to divorce, are better off because we have no-fault divorce and unilateral divorce. But there is one seminal study on this, which is the Quarterly Journal of Economics from 2006, is Betsy Stevens and Justin Wolfer. And they tracked no-fault divorce laws state by state. By the way, incidentally, Ronald Reagan passed the first no-fault divorce law in 1969. And some people speculate that one of the reasons why he did so is that his wife 
had accused him of, quote, mental cruelty in order to, to obtain a divorce. So perhaps he didn't love the fact that the divorce laws were kind of forcing people to make accusations in order to seek divorces, speculation. But this, uh, this study from Stevens and Wolfer found that states that introduced unilateral divorce found 8 to 16% declines in female suicide, roughly a 30% decline in domestic violence for both men and women, and a 10% decline in females murdered by their partners. Now, that's a starting point because in this country, mm-hmm. you're not a slave to your children, right? You don't, like, not all decisions you make in your life have to be in the best interests of your children, um, especially when we're talking about on the margins. And in this case, like, it seems to be pretty clear cut that we have autonomy in this country, which we have freedom. So you should be free to marry and not marry and leave any marriage you want, in my opinion. And two is, even if statistically speaking, it's better for people to be together uh, for their kids, that shouldn't force people into those marriages. And we'll get to some of that data. It's not actually clear that that's the case, that that keep forcing people to stay in marriages is good for kids. But even if you conceded that, that's not how we treat people in this country. Like we say, look, like this is about your yeah. individual autonomy. So I don't know. I think this, this, I mean, this does worry me a little bit. I think there's some conflation of the extreme cases in which a woman might be driven to suicide in order or in a relationship that she's in. Like obviously the kids that are involved in that sort of family setup are not going to be better off if their parents don't divorce. Whereas, you know, there might be more, um, gray area situations. I mean, I I think where one thing that Shapiro is correct about is the fact that there's a growing divide in divorce rates between college educated and non college educated couples. Um, I don't agree with the the straight line causality that that no fault divorce is responsible for all of these increasingly individualistic kind of attitudes that Americans have adopted in recent decades. I do think it's you know it's happened in a parallel time frame, but I don't know that that's a cause necessarily, or even if it is one, it's one of many and it's a larger societal shift. Um, I mean, even like the birth control pill is probably involved in, in this in a really, um, kind of profound way as well. Like technology has changed and the way that we live our lives and our relationships have changed fundamentally. I do agree though, that there's a major problem with divorce in this country. And the fact that 50% of marriages end in divorce right now is a staggering thing that we should all be concerned with trying to change. I mean, that's not happy for anyone, for the children, for the people, the, the, the people in a marriage, for the rest of society. Like, I'm a child of divorce, and that wasn't a pleasant thing for me personally. Um, and children of divorce are three times more likely to have mental health issues. Obviously, there's like the correlation causation sort of question there, obviously. You know, it could just be any number of factors that contribute to that. But I think that there's an important conversation to be had about why this is happening. Um, And part of it's probably the no-fault option. But I think it's also the the consequence of the generations that have gotten to the point where they could have already been married and divorced. You know, there was more of an expectation to get married no matter what, even just in my parents' generation versus now. And I, I think this is part of a larger social kind of pendulum swing that's going to happen. And I've long said that I expect my generation to get like, considering that half of our parents are divorced. Um, I would, I expect that fewer of us will get married, but of that proportion who do get married, a lower percentage will get divorced because I don't think there's that expectation. And I think we're also a lot more sensitive to the, the possibility that a marriage ends in divorce. And we might be um, more careful in, and cautious and actually ending up getting married in the first place. 
Yeah, I think a couple of things, you know, I too was a product of divorce. Actually, the first wedding I ever attended was my parents getting remarried to each other. My dad's been married and divorced four times. And there's something really interesting dad, in this data. Dad, don't take notes, please. No more weddings for my father, please. <laughs> I, I actually think there's a fifth coming for my dad. Hopefully this will be the last one. But the thing was, like, my parents should have gotten divorced. Like, they shouldn't have been together. I'm glad they had me. So, like, and if I'm just running back the clock anecdotally on myself, like, well, like, I'm glad they had me. So I think I might have come up in the peak of divorce. So the 1980s seemed to be when this, you know, divorce was as high as it's ever been. And you know, in 1980 itself, there were 22.6 divorces per thousand married women. Uh, and that number is now 15.7 in 2018. And one potential explanation here, and obviously there are probably many explanations, is that the age of first marriage has risen. So people are waiting longer to get married. But what's also fascinating is there is a, there is certainly, to give uh, Shapiro credit for at least an assumption he's making, there certainly seems to be a difference here in how different socioeconomic classes treat this, but it's actually the opposite mm -hmm. of what he's implying in his point. He's implying that it's the elites who are somehow pushing and taking an advantage. At least I could, from what I could tell, obviously he talked fast and it was a short clip, but it's actually the elites are getting divorced less. So college educated Americans have seen their divorce rates drop by 30% since the eighties. No, I think that's what he's uh, saying. I think he's saying that there, that there's an elite class that's pushing the no fault narrative and that it's lower class people who are following that narrative, but they're not elites themselves are not doing it, which I don't really agree that this is as much of a conspiracy as he's making it out to be. But I do think he has it right yeah. in the way that elite liberal Ronald Reagan, 50 states, you know, it's like the, yeah. the amount, the brush that he paints with is so broad. Sometimes it's hard to take him seriously. Now, speaking of somebody it's hard to take seriously, Stephen Crowder, right? Let's get this out of the way now. So Crowder is a very successful podcaster. Listeners might not know this, but one of the reasons why he started talking about this, he started talking about this no-fault divorce stuff around Dobbs, but then he also talked about it in the context of his own marriage and implied that he basically complained about no-fault and unilateral divorce as it relates to his marriage. He's been in the middle of a very fraught marriage, uh, and I don't know if this was his wife or somebody released some really strange footage of him and his, and his wife. And I only mention this because he is a prominent commentator who is now using his personal experience to try to convince others to change a law. So I think a discussion of where he's coming from on this is warranted. Let's go to this clip. I think this is from like a ring doorbell or something on, you know, in the front of his house. Yeah, home security camera. In a conversation between him and his, I think now, I guess, ex-wife. The only way out of it is discipline It's the only way out of it is we're at an impact. We are going to get past. Good. Because you can't have any discipline Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You throw your hand. You give up so easily. I don't give up so easily. You, know, you give up so easily. I, I just said the only way out of this is discipline and respect. You said, then we're at an impasse. Steven, no, we are at an impasse. Okay? I love you, but Steven, Steven, your abuse is sick. Your abuse watch it. is sick. Watch it. Fucking watch it. I'm going to let go. I'll get what you need to get. And I, I need some space. We need to just talk and baby for a little bit. Okay? I love you. I love you very much. I don't love you. That's the big problem. I've never received love from you. So this is a woman, if you can't hear it too much on the podcast, who's saying your abuse is sick. She's asking for space. Now, Crowder is implying that this woman should be, I don't know, forced to sustain a marriage with him, which seems rather like mm. this alone to me seems like a case I mean, for I don't unilateral think he's gone divorce. As 
I don't think he's gone as far as to say that she should be forced, but he's saying this was not my choice, but he's lamenting the fact that he doesn't have a stand in that. Um, I mean, I'm immensely uncomfortable watching this clip because I'm sure that any married couple has a really unfortunate moment that's happened in their home like this, but this is very revealing. And, you know, I think it's become an example of, of precisely why like everyone in a marriage should have a right to, to get out. But also even if there wasn't no fault divorce, like no fault means that a spouse doesn't have to require show or isn't required to show wrongdoing. And if she produced this clip in court, I think that she would have shown wrongdoing at the very least. But, you know, that's also goes to show the like snitch culture that it would sort of create. Like you'd have to be paranoid of whether your spouse is creating a case against you, like an HR file or something. So, you know, I think the thing on this issue for me is I think the legislators that are making moves to overturn no-fault divorce are, are recognizing a legitimate problem in our society, but they're wrong to think that as lawmakers, they have a role in fixing that. Um, I think it's just it's a social issue that we're contending with. I think a lot of the norms around marriage and sexuality and dating and um, pretty much everything in that realm have changed in a really rapid clip over the course of the 20th century and early 21st century. We're still in a pendulum swing sort of thing, figuring out like, what does it mean to have rough gender parity? What does it mean that women have control over their reproductive destinies largely today? What does it mean that you can get a no-fault divorce? And, you know, it's going to take a couple generations to figure that out. I think that our current social ills are a demonstration of that fact, but I don't think the law is going to figure it out for us. And as soon as it tries to, I think it risks going into very dystopian territory. Yeah. And I think the irony of this, when you talk about Crowder, is that if we actually change the no-fault Law, he'd be actually harmed by that because his wife would be able to use this clip to, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, gain more assets, get the kids, all this kind of stuff. And once again, the reason why we raise this, he used this as a jumping off point to talk about this, and so his his marriage meaning. And so to me, that means it's fair game. Like, where are you coming at this from? One thing that is a little disconcerting is that there's some of these articles about this have raised the prospect that they don't even need legislative action in order to change these laws. So there's a judge, uh, Matthew Kaczmarek, who is one of the people who issued rulings in Texas on birth control and Mephistoprone, has been critical of no-fault divorce. And he wrote in a piece of the National Catholic Register that Reagan's signing of the Family Law Act of 1969 was the first pillar to fall when it came to marriage law, basically decrying it, and talks about other pillars that shouldn't have fallen, including the elimination of legal penalties for fornication and adultery and abortion rights and contraception. So this being a cascading effect that led to abortion rights and contraception. Now, he'll have to answer as to which of those pillars he thinks should absolutely stand, but the implication is that they all should have stood. And that's weird, like getting to your point about what's the role of the government or not. I'm First of all, we don't, we don't have enough judges to take care of the disputes that we have in this country. I'm not sure they should be deciding whether Steven Crowder was a good husband or not, unless the allegation yeah. is of abuse in a criminal way or somebody seeking damages outside of the marriage. I also am not sure mm-hmm. that our, our criminal justice system should be used to decide who cheated on who. Like, you know, this isn't, you know, Judge Judy. This isn't reality TV. That's not the role of the government. And like, I, I'm just, 
this would be a rather strange effect if we now ask you know people who are uh, an already stressed judicial system to decide yeah. you know where Stephen Crowder was on the night of January second or whatever, and whether he was with a, his mistress or not. You know, it's just not. And I don't know if he has a mistress, but like that's just not the role of the government. Not to mention that in my home state of New Jersey, in several counties, you currently can't get a divorce unless there's an imminent domestic threat. That just goes to show how much our judiciary is run over with cases right now post-COVID. Shall we do a slow take segment now? Slow takes is our opportunity where we we generally don't like to jump on too many things that are too hot in the moment when there's you know, any sense of ambiguity about facts and people jumping to conclusions and, you know, sort of the polarized media kind of taking shots at each other and performing against each other. We try to stay away from those stories until the dust has settled. Now, one of these stories, Ricky, where the dust, I wouldn't say is fully settled, but we, we have Certainly some not. sense of what we're going to know for a while is this case of Jordan Neely, uh, who was choked to death on the New York subway. You want to give us a rundown of what we know so far about what happened in this case? I think an important thing to do here is to zoom out because in the moment of this interaction between um, Daniel Penny and Jordan Neely, neither of them knew each other's background. And I think their backgrounds have become the subject of a lot of conversation. But I think we should talk about what exactly happened in that subway car, what they knew at the time, and what we know about that moment, which was a month ago today on an F train in Manhattan. Um, A homeless young black man entered a train car. He was, according to reports of um, onlookers in the car, he was begging and got agitated and erratic, um, saying he was hungry and thirsty and that he didn't care about, quote, going to jail or getting life in prison and that he was willing to die. Um, And according to some reports, he was Um, making people on the subway car concerned, having said those sorts of things. And he threw his jacket on the ground, at which point a young white uh, guy named Daniel Penny, um, he got the sense that he wanted to protect people. And so he placed him in a chokehold and he was thrashing. So two other passengers restrained his limbs. One of the other two passengers was a person of color. Um, and the reports for how long he was in that chokehold vary considerably. Um, it was several minutes. Some people say up to 15 minutes, but three minutes of it record recorded on video by a, an onlooker who happened to be a freelance journalist. Um, and during that video, at one point in time, an onlooker tells, told him to let him go that you were going to kill him. Another one said, he's all right. You're not going to die. The guy who recorded it later said, none of us were thinking that he could die. He was moving and defending himself. So there's a, variation of takes as this is unfolding. Um, But ultimately, when the the subway doors opened at the Broadway Lafayette station, um, they released him and turned him on his side in order to prevent him from choking on his vomit, which is something that can happen when someone's in a chokehold and they go unconscious. And medics arrived. They weren't able to revive him. He was taken to Lenox Hill Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. A medical examiner said that it was compression of the neck and um, the the man who put him in a chokehold was taken into custody but released and then ultimately was charged and let out on bail. And so this has become a big cause of the right and the left. Uh, The left is calling this the equivalent of a lynching and the right, uh, there are people raising money for Daniel Penny 
uh, and taking up his cause and also saying that this is a symptom of larger issues going on in New York City, which we'll get to all of that. But I think the, the thing to start with here, Ricky, and I totally agree, is we should start with the people on that subway train and what we know about what they knew and what they did. Yeah. And there's some things we know and some things we absolutely don't know. And right now we know for sure that New York City, Manhattan, DA, Alvin Bragg has charged Penny with mm-hmm. second degree manslaughter. And Jordan Neely is the name of the gentleman who was killed, by the way, again, just uh, to keep track of the names here. And so second degree manslaughter in New York requires a reckless disregard, right? So let me read this to you. A person acts recklessly with respect to a result or to circumstance described by a statute defining an offense when he is aware of and consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that such result will occur or that such circumstance exists. The risk must be of such nature and degree that disregard thereof constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of conduct that a reasonable person would observe in this situation. So second degree manslaughter here Bragg was criticized on the left for not going for first degree, but I think the reason why this is second degree is because it's pretty obvious even to people, even most people on the left, I think, would acknowledge that that Penny did not intend to kill this man. So if he intended to kill him, it would be first degree, or at least if there's some sense that he intended to kill him. Yeah. It seems that everybody agrees that I he I mean, there's some people who are him. assuming, I mean, there are some more extreme takes, I think, on the left, like AOC almost immediately tweeting, killing is wrong, killing the poor is wrong, killing the mentally ill is wrong. Why is this so hard to say? As though this was, that implied to me but it, a degree of intent. But but there, at least with AOC, I think I think he did kill him. Like the question is, did he murder him or, or commit manslaughter in yeah. the case of this statute? Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that I find really hard to to grapple with in the, in the coverage of this is that it's being painted as the system versus... Uh, the versus Neely or like that somehow, like we start with the systemic issues here and the fact that Neely had a pretty uh, extensive criminal history, right? So he he had been, uh, he had three charges of unprovoked assaults on women on the subway between 2019 and 2021. Including one elderly woman. But yeah, he had, there was a warrant out on him for assault of an elderly woman. He was arrested 42 times. But I think this is an important like delineation to draw because that's become so much of a conversation about what exactly should happen to Daniel Penny, which is a separate issue from like the systemic failures. But at the point in time that Penny met this guy, he didn't know his 42 arrests, but you know, yes. that does play into his hand a little bit. And in, in saying this might be someone who genuinely was being provocative and potentially dangerous because he historically has been capable of this. But I also think it's important to mention that Penny did not know that at the time. I think, but I think that would come into play if there was some kind of ambiguous account where different people on that subway, and this could happen, say that he had put their hands on them, et cetera. It seems to be undisputed at this moment that he made verbal threats. So he made verbal his, threats. His, yeah, he did not make physical yeah. threats. There just seems to be no report that he did. And to our knowledge, nobody on that train raised the fact to Penny or anybody else who assisted the fact that. Neely had this criminal record. So although the system, when we're putting the system on trial as to why this gentleman was on the subway with a warrant and these many, many counts, he had been arrested 42 times in New York City. That's one question, which I do want us to get Mm -hmm. to. But I think when it gets to the question of criminal culpability here, the question arises, should someone making verbal threats and throwing their jacket on the ground, which is what happened here, be choked to death? I think most people say, of course not. So the question then becomes, well, did... Penny do anything uh, in this case 
where he either like continued on when it seemed likely that such a a death would occur or you know to use the reckless disregard standard like did he go past any reasonable person standard of what was warranted in the situation and that is a thing for a jury to decide i think one thing yeah. for sure that we know and i'll quote the the national review andrew mccarthy wrote a piece and he he was not sympathetic to neely in this piece or to the left but he did say that this was probably a charge and he said that while a civilian is still allowed to use force necessary to detain a threatening person until the police arrive, the force has to be proportionate to the threat. And in this case, at least one person on that subway, this seems beyond dispute because it's on the video, raises the prospect that this guy could have been killing him. And so the question for the jury is going to be, well, was that a reasonable thing to think? Should Penny have known that? Could he have loosened up a bit? Could some of the other people who were helping, like when you have three on one, five on one, whatever the numbers were in the subway, could you loosen up on his neck a little bit? Like, you know, mm -hmm. these are the things that I think a jury is going to want to decide. And I do think this is an important area of public policy because we don't want vigilante justice in this country. As much as we might be frustrated with the system, et cetera, we don't want people choking other people to death for making verbal threats on the train. We also don't want to put normal civilians in a position where they feel like they need to defend themselves against someone who's repeatedly endangered other people or made them feel unsafe as well. And I think that's an important conversation to to be had too, because to me, there's absolutely nothing um, humane about arresting and releasing someone who's living on, in the subway system and is clearly as mentally disturbed as Neely was and in desperate need of help. Um, and you know, that's not a, an easy situation to like figure out how the system can be better at doing that. But, you know, just, I think now would be a good time to back up and talk about who these people were and how they ended up here in the first place. And on the Jordan Neely front, um, my colleague Dana Kennedy at the post did, um, on actually both parties, she did some of the the earliest reporting. She got the only interview with Daniel Penny that he's done so far, but she, um, wrote a, a she knocked on the door of Neely's family, like immediately after it happened. She's a, a great reporter who's always the first one everywhere. And she found out more about his backstory and wrote an article that was really celebrated by um, people on the right and the left for digging into the human aspect of who Jordan Neely was. Um, he was 30 years old. He was known to some as a Michael Jackson impersonator and to others, obviously, in very different situation. Um, but he had a really tragic family background. His father hadn't spoken to him in four years. He seems to have no meaningful family support. Um, he one day as a teenager in 2007, tried to say goodbye to his mom before school and hit, her boyfriend blocked him from getting into the door. And that day he strangled her to death and put her body in a suitcase and threw it onto a shoulder of the Henry, Henry Hudson Parkway. And at 14, he had to testify against this boyfriend and his own mother's killing. His aunt told Dana that that gave him PTSD and that just he just spiraled out of control and mental illness. And that that trajectory led him by age 30 to have been arrested 42 times to be assaulting people on the subway to be clearly in very poor mental health. And he was on the list of New York City's 50 most um, 50 homeless people in most acute need of of attention and help. Um, but 
to me, what does that list mean? If we, what help did he get? How, how did the system do him any justice? Like it's, it's really disturbing that we're incarcerating and releasing people, which would only make their situation worse. And I'm not saying that I know what the perfect solution is, but certainly this is someone with a really horrific, tragic background who is in desperate need of help. The city recognized it and yet we failed to do anything at all whatsoever and left him in a position where this is how he died, which is horrendous. Yeah, one thing I think we'll have to spend some time on, you you and I did a segment a little while ago about this involuntary uh, treatment commitment. of people yeah. in need of commitment. We had a, a pretty vigorous debate on this. And one thing that I find frustrating about this Neely case is that people are saying that this is more evidence for why we need involuntary treatment of people. But I'm like, well, wait a minute. Didn't we just talk about this fact that this guy had been arrested 42 times and had a warrant out for his arrest? Like, we don't even need yeah, involuntary putting, treatment in this Throwing him in jail doesn't do anything. Throwing him in jail and then plopping him back out in the street does nothing for him. Actually trying to figure out how we can address his mental health issues would help. Well, I think that those both can happen, right? So in this case, well, they're not like, in my in my. Of course, I think we both agree to that, right? And we've done many segments about how broken the policing and mental health overlap is in, in New York City. I think we could stipulate to that. We agree on that, but I think like it's a matter of sequencing to me, right? And and what I said in that segment was that I believe in our constitutional protection of due process of the law and the fact that you can't just lock people up for not physically assaulting people, right? You could run around and say whatever the hell you want. Yes, there are certain laws. Well, he against, did physically assault you know, people like, as well. Well, that's what I'm saying is that he should be, he should have been locked up for that. And I do think that when you commit multiple assaults, you should not just be put away for months, you should be put away for years. But I also believe that when we send people into the prison system, that we need to truly try to solve the problems that are going on here. And in this case, our system, if it were working correctly, would have identified this guy as a mentally ill person and gotten him treatment. Because the goal of criminal justice, either you're going to lock somebody up for the rest of their lives, which would seem like a disproportionate reaction to anything that he's been accused of, or you try to rehabilitate somebody so that they, when they come out onto the street, they don't do the thing that they got in there in the first place. And there's no evidence whatsoever that this guy got the treatment that he needed. And I think everybody can agree to that. 100%. I think also another thing though, like I think we have to be realistic too. I think there's some people who are kind of pretending that involuntary commitment or stuff like that would be a fix all. And even in situations with mental illness in which people have the, the best possible family support, it's not, I mean, it's, I hate to say this as crudely as this, but like our psychiatry today is still kind of like a pseudoscience and it's a lot of trial and error and getting someone into a healthy mental space and then making sure they continue to take their medication or follow their treatment is enormously difficult even with all of the resources in the world. And so the state will never be perfect in doing that. And I think we need to be sober about this. But, you know, the state does also have a responsibility in in making sure that people who are in the state that Jordan Neely was are not endangering themselves by endangering others, which absolutely no one wins for. And, um, and I think this is a good time to back up and talk about Daniel Penny, who, um, who Dana interviewed as in his only interview, he's 24 years old. He was a former Marine who was deployed twice. He was living in East village at the time on the way to his gym. Um, he's an architecture student 
And um, one of the things that that Dana talked to him about, which I think is important to we haven't really even addressed, is that there was a large implication and pretty immediate implication that race was a motivator here, which I've yet to see any well, evidence. One of the that, men who helped Penny restrain Neely was black, and the journalist filming yeah. the whole thing was a Mexican immigrant. Which, look, anybody of any race could be racist, but I think like. I would need to hear just, more to 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 justify any conclusion about racism. I mean, I also just would say uh, there's no evidence that unless something comes out that we don't know about, there's absolutely zero evidence that Daniel Penny woke up that day and said, I'm going to kill a black person for that reason or that I'm going to kill anyone or that that was a motivating fact. You know, I mean, maybe there's some, some psychology that made him act more whatever. I mean, that we can go down that rabbit hole ad nauseum. But one of the things that he said is, it had nothing to do with race. That was the first thing that he was really clear to Dana about. And he said, I'm not a white supremacist, which is an accusation that he's been given. But um, let's throw to a clip. Uh, I spoke to Dana this morning about what it was like to interview him and what his impression or her impression was of him. Daniel Penny came across to me as almost like an archetype, really, of, of almost like a surfer dude in his own world. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He was a Marine, as we know, he served four years, but he came across more I and mean, he grew up surfing, you know, on Long Island and he doesn't watch the news. And I believed him when he said that he doesn't know who the Reverend Al Sharpton is. And I believed him when he said that too, because he's 24 years old. And I mean, who under 30, like, you know, reads papers and watches TV news. I don't think too many do. He just really seemed like a kid that was either in the, you know, depending on your point of view, in the right place at the right time or or the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't think he necessarily grasps the reality of what happened, that a man is dead, but that's just my speculation. Mm. He just seemed like a very, you know, the kind of person that is the opposite of codependent. He's in his own world. He doesn't care about fame. Uh, he doesn't, you know, it sounds like his own perception of himself is what matters. He doesn't seem that freaked out by the mass attention that has come up as a result of this case, but that, that could be denial. But again, mm-hmm. he certainly did not seem like somebody that was prone to violence or a hot dogger or a cowboy or or any or some sort of stereotypical Republican or redneck guy who's going to, you know, step in there and, and you know, kick ass and take names. He just seemed like like a surfer dude actually from California. Yeah, what's interesting about this and and we don't there's so much we don't know yet, but this mm-hmm. will obviously be litigated through trial is the preliminarily and this could be like a take that ages very poorly based on what comes out. But this seems a little different than Rittenhouse which we could covered I think before your time coming in here where there was regardless of how people think about Rittenhouse, there was more of a sense of intentionality about what he was going to do that day. Now, I I don't believe that Rittenhouse there's any evidence that he there was a like, choice to show up at conflict, yeah, whereas here yeah, there with was a gun, not. yeah, with a gun in yeah. a place that where he had really strong reason to believe he was going to encounter the kind of situation that he found himself in. Now, this is different as we know it right now. It, it would be strange. It would be a strange turn of events if we found out that somehow he left this house seeking this altercation. I've, I've seen yeah, that's stranger not things, happen. but that would be weird. Um, so the question of who he is is, is going to be a, a, a central part of this trial. Charlemagne, who I think is usually has unconventional takes, jumped on something I think Penny said in this interview at the Post. Uh, let's go to Charlemagne's take here. Uh, here's some words you don't use to describe a murder. 
Okay, when you are charged with manslaughter, comical. Okay, Daniel Penny said it's a little bit comical to call him a racist. Daniel, I don't know if you're a racist or not, but you have to understand that some people are trying to figure out why you would just strangle a, a man on the subway, okay? And a white man doing that to a black man in America, we are always going to go to race first. So it's not comical to think you're a racist. It's context. Okay, historical context at that. Blame your ancestors and racist peers for people jumping to that conclusion. But that's not even the reason you're getting donkey today. I mean, personally, you could have just left it at, you know, I'm not racist. I love all people. I love all cultures. But no. Did y'all catch it? The reason why he couldn't be racist? Listen, listen to this one again. I'm not a white supremacist. I mean, it's it's a little bit comical. Everybody who's ever met me can tell you I love all people. I love all cultures. You can tell by my past and all of my travels and adventures around the world, I was actually planning a road trip through Africa before this happened. I was actually planning a road trip through Africa before this happened. Now that's comical. So, you know, Charlemagne goes on to to sort of poke holes at the sort of rationale there. But I, I think, like, in the end, this is the kind of thing that the jury is going to have to look at and they will look at who he is as a person, Daniel Penny. They will look at his, his record. Uh, He's not charged with a hate crime. So regardless of what AOC or what anybody else on the left may say about this guy's motivations and whether this is a lynching or not, that is not the charge that he's gotten. And I have seen no evidence that this was racially motivated. And I think Charlemagne to to clarify one thing he said, which he kind of clarified, Penny wasn't saying, that the situation was comical. He was saying that the accusation that he was racist was comical. Now, if I were advising him, I would have advised him to respond a little differently to that, that claim. But I do think this, this, this underscores what your colleague at the post said, which is, this is a guy who I, from what I could tell, hasn't quite grasped that he's in the eye of a hurricane yet. And the the true nature of how violent and disorienting that hurricane's going to be. And he may find himself in prison for a very long time, depending on how this jury sees this charge. I personally find this very depressing. Like the whole saga is very depressing. Absolutely. I mean, and in his own words that he said, um, I'm deeply saddened by the loss of life. It's tragic what happened to him. Hopefully we can change the system that so desperately failed us. And I do think that there is a truth. Obviously, there, one person is alive and one person is dead and I'm not equating it one to one, but there is a truth that a system failed both of them in the sense that that's how they met. And that's, this is now each of their fate. Um, but you know, the, the comical word, I mean, this is a 24 year old with no media training. And right. I think that's probably the, the result of that. And, you know, it sounded like Dana's, um, take on it is that he's kind of in denial. And I, I mean, that, is inevitable when your life is flipped upside down in this way. But um, one thing that was interesting that I also talked to Dana about was that he wasn't allowed to comment on anything about actually what happened that day. It was more a biographical interview, but she was able to pull some threads um, out of him. And um, he said the altercation leading up to it um, on the subway was, which is all, this is all very vague because his lawyer was there, was unlike anything I'd experienced before. Um, He pointed to the fact that everyone that's been interviewed has very, 
supposedly very uniform recollections of what happened um, and that there was, quote, menacing threats and terror. So I think there's a lot that remains to be seen that will be brought up in the discovery process here. Obviously, there are a lot of eyewitnesses. Only a few of them have spoken to the press. Um, and I think there's so many holes that still need to be filled here. And I mean, it's it's just a, it's a really complicated situation. And this is a month ago today. And I'm glad that we didn't hop on the bandwagon of um, a lot of the the hot headed sort of t- or I don't not hot headed, but, you know, quick reactions, we'll say. Yeah. And I think one of the unfortunate things about criminal justice in this country is that sometimes and I'm not I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. Sometimes people go away, especially on manslaughter charges for things that you can both believe is the right outcome, but is still a tragic one nonetheless. Yeah. Like, and, and in this case, I don't know the man. I have no reason to think he's, he's bad, but let's pretend for a second that you believe that this is just a genuine person trying to do the right thing. There's no malice in his heart. I think that's a possible outcome for sure. Yeah. A very possible outcome, depending on who you are. You might even say it's a likely outcome, right? But that's a possible outcome is that this was a person trying to do the right thing, but that he passed some reasonableness threshold in the way that maybe there would have been a threat in the beginning, but the length and severity of the chokehold that he gave is something that we as a society mm-hmm. have an interest in avoiding and that we send him away for that. And a judge would have to decide after a jury, if a jury found him guilty, a judge would have to decide well, how do we balance these things? And that's when it does take into account, well, who is this person? Does he have a record? He served in the military, all this kind of stuff. Now, obviously there's another version of this, which is we could find out all sorts of stuff in trial that could change that calculus altogether. But I do think this is why it's important to treat people with compassion throughout this process and due process. Like, And as I've advocated yeah. on this podcast, I there's, there's few people in this world I loathe more than Donald Trump, but even I've advocated for due process for him on this podcast uh, by the very same district attorney that's putting Neely, uh, um, you know, in front of a jury. And I, th- right now, based on what I could see, it makes sense to me that w- they would have charged him with second degree manslaughter. And I have no opinion whatsoever on his ultimate guilt. Cause I think that's what a jury has to decide based on the weight of the evidence and a lengthy investigation into this. And we'll cover this as it, as it, as it winds its way through the courtroom. I think yeah. he's up. Uh, One last to, thing. Oh yeah. Go for it. One last thing that I think, you know, just to make sure that we steel man both sides here. And one thing that I'll certainly say does not work in his benefit, um, just to balance some of the more sympathetic things I've said, is that, you know, this is someone with military training who decided to put someone in a chokehold, which is a very specific maneuver that theoretically he would have been trained in or knew something about. And that would entail like cutting off someone's arteries and cutting off the blood flow and not their trachea, which is a delicate balance and something that... I mean, he was training other Marines. And so, you know, hopefully if you, if you jump to the task and you go that route when there are other people to help you in the best case scenario, you know what you're doing and you, and you do it properly. And the, the fact that he died from compression of the neck demonstrates that that's not the case. And so I think there is a really good case to say, if you're going to take justice into your own hands, if you're someone with military training, at least do a maneuver that you, you know, you can do properly. Um, so And by the way, I I said, uh, before I said uh, Neely on trial, I meant Penny on trial, of course. Sorry about that. Well, okay. Uh, We'll be keeping an eye on this. Uh, You know, the the sheer amount of high-profile cases making its way through lower Manhattan right now is staggering. Um, 
So I just want to thank everybody for listening. Once again, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. Uh, check out Sweat the Technique this week. I j- interviewed Jessica Leahy, who's the author of a book uh, about letting kids fail. And we had a really interesting conversation about parenting, and she's got a lot to say. She's a former middle school teacher and parenting expert who has some really practical tools for those of you who are parents. Uh, send in your voicemails, 321-200-0570. Uh, we'll be right back here on Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. 